As if the metaphor didn't need further unpacking, we all have a phone. I believe all phones have a function that allows you to put it into airplane mode, which protects, prevents your phone from receiving notifications, text messages, pings, alerts, all of the constant influx of information and distraction and busyness and noise that our life normally carries with it, right? And so what we've been saying for the last four weeks is that our lives need a similar feature. They need a similar function, something that protects us from the continual interruptions, the continual distractions, the continual pulls for the tyranny of the urgent in our lives. We need something, a rhythm, a habit, a discipline, something in our lives that gives us an opportunity, a a consistent and reliable means of getting away and shutting out all of the noise and all of the hurry and all of the busyness and all of the distraction. And so for, it seems like, months now, we've been talking about the same practice. You've been with us this whole series. But we've been talking about the practice of stillness and of silence, of solitude, this type of contemplative prayer that we think is central to spiritual growth and spiritual formation. Now, if you're kind of new to us or you're just checking us out and you're not sure who we are and what we're about, one of the things that I think is important for you to know is that we kind of have a, a way of understanding how we think life works. And this is really simple. We believe that we're all on a spiritual journey of sorts. There is no exception to this. We're all on some type of spiritual journey. It just depends on what type of journey that you're in the middle of. For some of us, uh, we haven't really spent much time thinking about God. Others of us, we kind of have this on and off again relationship. And then there's even another category of us. We're trying to be faithful. We just don't always know exactly what that looks like. But we believe that this practice of solitude and silence is maybe the most formative thing spiritually that you can adopt in your life. And really, our lives are always being formed in one direction or another. All of the pursuits that you have in your life, all of the priorities and all of the values that you hold form you in different ways. Think about it from a professional sense. There is a version of success in your industry or your career or your field or your job that you hold in your mind and you likely make lots of decisions over days, weeks, months, years that try to move you closer to that ideal, right? In your families, whether it's as parents or whether it's a spouse or whether it's as a friend or a sibling, we all have these versions of what we think the best version of that looks like. And we try to make decisions that form us and move us closer and closer to that goal. We think the same is true of kind of our spiritual life. We actually don't think that there's any separation between regular life and spiritual life. We don't think your spiritual life should be isolated to one hour on Sunday mornings once a week and then you kind of go back to your regular life and just continue on. You see, what ends up happening from kind of the moment we're born is we set out on this journey to try to form ourselves into something. We have some image or ideal that we hold. And that's informed by lots of different things. It's informed by our parents and where we've grown up and all of the examples that... um, point us towards what success and whatever measurement it is, like however that defines that, and we're trying to strive towards that. We believe here that 
the most well-lived life, the best life you can possibly live, is the life that's most spiritually formed and transformed. Because any other path, any other journey, any other endeavor ultimately will fall short. You'll arrive at some place where what you thought would be on the other side of all of the achievement or all of the popularity or all of the success or wealth or whatever it is that you were in pursuit of that you thought defined the best lived life, at some point you recognize and realize that that falls short. For some of you, you've accomplished all that you ever thought and hoped that you'd accomplish. And you realize that in a lot of ways it's not as satisfying and as meaningful as you expected it to be. For others of you, you're still in pursuit of that, but you're starting to have this sense that maybe this isn't all it was cracked up to be. You start to see examples from other people about the trade-offs that you have to make in pursuit of these versions of our lives and the consequences of the trade-offs, and you're like, I don't know that I want to make the same trade-offs that they made. And you see, oh gosh, well they made partner, but their family fell apart and their kids don't speak to them anymore. And so is that really what I want? You start to reevaluate the priorities and the orientation that your life is heading. And so, so much of where we spend the efforts and energies of our lives is on the exterior. It's on the external. And what we're suggesting and what we try to equip and resource and point you towards is the way that this journey is actually far more internal and it's far more interior. And we think one of the best ways to be formed spiritually into who God created you to be so that you can live the best life possible in the most fullest sense of richness and meaning and significance and purpose, not exterior success or notoriety or popularity or wealth or any of the other trappings they get tatted in this life. But at the end of your life, you can pass with the sense of peace and assurance that you lived life well. We think that comes through being spiritually formed and spiritually transformed. And silence and solitude are one of the best ways to do that. Now, we've been trying to reiterate this over and over and over again, and most of the series has been trying to convince you of that truth and also starting to show what it looks like to start this practice in your own life, to give you tools and tips and insight on what it might mean to begin. But I want to look at a story today with you and talk about once you've started, where this journey goes and what it looks like. Because unfortunately, it is not a journey of rainbows and sunshine that we might hope it is. And so sometimes because it's not that, we think we're doing it wrong or we've done something wrong. And so I want to walk you through a story that I think points us to the reality of what spiritual formation looks like, particularly through the practice of silence and solitude. Now, the best way to do this is to kind of give you some background into the life of a man that we're going to look at a very specific moment in his life and a very specific incident in his story. Now, this man is named Jacob of the kind of fathers of Israel fame, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, kind of the leaders of this people. Now, what you need to know about Jacob was Jacob was born as a twin. 
His older brother Esau comes out a little bit before him. Jacob comes out grabbing Esau's heel. And so Jacob's name means uh, trickster or deceiver or heel grabber, some weird kind of play on words in the Hebrew language. But Jacob spends his life trying to gain the life that he thinks he's deserved, that he's entitled to, a life of richness and fullness and of blessing and of success. And he thinks it's ultimately up to him to secure all of this. Now, what we find early in Jacob's story is that God has already promised to Jacob that he would be one of the fathers of the people of Israel, that all that he could ever hope to become, God had already promised him, that this blessing that Jacob was in search of was his. He just had to live into it. But Jacob doesn't heed this guidance, and he doesn't pay attention to this instruction, and so he goes about through years and decades of manipulation and deceit and coercion to try to gain all that he hopes to have. In doing so, he maybe you're familiar with this story, he manipulates his brother to gain his brother's kind of inheritance and birthright and blessing. He tricks his father, Isaac, to get Esau's blessing and then spends the next 20 years trying to manipulate another guy to gain the hand of a woman in marriage and ends up with her sister at first. And then he has to double back and kind of continue to earn the favor of the father. And then once he has these two wives, he then tricks the man again to gain more wealth and possession and livestock. So Jacob's life is marked by success externally, but the ways in which he's had to go about it weren't legitimate, they weren't honest, they weren't a life lived well, and ultimately, rent comes due on that path. And this is what happens to Jacob. Jacob finds himself in a place where he hears and receives word that his brother Esau knows of his whereabouts and is coming to meet him. And of course, if you've spent the last 30 years swindling people, you kind of expect for there to be a showdown and the people that you're coming that are coming to meet you aren't going to be that happy with you. Well, Jacob finds out that Esau's coming and he has an army of 400 with him. So you would probably draw the same conclusions that Jacob draws. And so in this moment of panic, Jacob starts to pray and he prays to God and he says, God, I'm sorry for the ways that I have not trusted you. God, you have promised me all of these these beautiful things in my life, all of these blessings, and I've ignored your promise. And I've done it my way. Help me in this moment. My guess is, if you're like me, you've had a similar moment like Jacob's had. Or you've done it your way, and you've done it your way, and then you start to experience the consequences of doing it your way, and all of a sudden you have great clarity about how you need God in your life, right? God, if you'll just let this one thing work out, if you'll just set this one thing straight, if you'll just protect me from this one thing, even though I'm the one responsible for all of the consequences that I'm about to see, if you'll just do this, or if you'll just show up in this way, God, then I'll get on the right path. And so the story that we're going to look at is what happens after Jacob prays this prayer, after he starts to begin to reconsider the way that he's lived his life thus far. And the way that he's pursued success and in the language of this story, his blessing, the way that Jacob's understood who he is supposed to be in this world, 
And so this is a story that happens in the middle of the night. Jacob, in fear of Esau and his army coming to kind of ask for payment back for all that Jacob has wronged him for. Jacob sends all of his family and all of his servants and all of his kind of possessions, his livestock away. He sends, sends them across this river. And we find Jacob all alone on the bank of the river in the middle of the night. And so if you've got your Bibles or if you want to pull it up on your phone, we're in Genesis 32. So this is how the story starts. So Jacob was left all alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. Now, if you're immediately asking, who is this man, that's the question they want you to ask. Prior to this, if you go back a couple of verses, there is no introduction of this man. We'll find the identity of this man later in the story, but all of a sudden, Jacob is there all alone on a riverbank in the middle of the night, and he begins to wrestle with the man. Now, for lots of us, uh, there should be similarities between Jacob's story and the way that we begin to approach this practice of stillness and solitude. This is kind of the parallel that the writers of this story want you to see, and this is the metaphor that we're going to lift and try to apply to our own context. Most of the time, sitting in stillness and silence before God does not feel like this beautiful conversation where you say a couple of things and then God responds back and then you say some more things and God responds back and, or you just sit and listen to all of the guidance and direction and clarity that God wants to provide for your life. Oftentimes, it feels like you're alone. It's dark. Maybe you're terrified. And it usually feels like wrestling. Like you're not making any progress like nothing's changing, like nothing's different than it was before you started. It's just kind of this back and forth, back and forth struggle. It's exhausting, it's tiring. You, the only effect of this whole process seems to be fatigue. Now, lots of us enter into this place uh, from different perspectives. For Jacob, it was kind of this dark night of the soul moment. Everything had blown up in his life, and so he goes before God and he begins to try to pray. For some of us, this is how we enter into these moments as well. Typically, it comes through some type of loss. Uh, it can be the loss of a specific individual. It can be the loss of a relationship. It can be the loss of a dream or an idea or a picture of your life the way that you had imagined that it would go. But typically, something is lost in our life that forces us to come face to face with the hard reality that life wasn't supposed to be this way. It might be a series of losses. It might just be a job lays you off unexpectedly and now you're trying to figure out what's next. Maybe it's a breakup or the end of a relationship that you didn't anticipate ever ending. It might be that you find yourself navigating kind of a medical diagnosis that caught you by surprise and came out of left field. Whatever it may be, there is some version where you're kind of holding the pieces of something that you didn't ever expect to be holding. So you enter into this place unprepared and ill-equipped, and all of a sudden you find yourself in the middle of a wrestling match that you weren't prepared for. 
But I want to point out one note that Jacob was left alone and he wrestled with him till daybreak. That's a significant amount of time. All night long. Some of you, you have prayed throughout nights hoping for something to be different. For some of you, it has felt like metaphorically you have prayed through an entire season of darkness and isolation. But what happens next doesn't happen until daybreak. For some of you, you're like, all right, God, I'm ready for the thing. I'm ready for you to make good on the blessing or for the life that I've hoped to live. But you're still in the middle of the night. And so for those of you who you haven't seen anything give or change or look different, my encouragement to you is just hold on. Just hold on. Keep wrestling. Daybreak is coming. And at that, everything begins to change. But this is what's particularly difficult about entering into stillness and silence and solitude is because it's disorienting in a way that nothing else in life is. We're hesitant to enter into this place because there's a, there's a nothingness there. There's a letting go, a falling away of sorts in this process, both psychologically because you enter into it and for some of us, we're so bombarded with noise and busyness and hurry and distraction that we're actually never alone with our thoughts, never alone with that eerie emptiness on the other side of just sitting in stillness and in silence. And it's unsettling because there's some stuff that we don't actually want to be reminded of or we don't want to have to face yet. Parts of our personality that we thought we were managing better than we were, ways that other people have started to point out stuff about us or about our life that we don't want to have to own up to or reconcile. So psychologically, it can be really disorienting. Spiritually, it's really difficult too because for some of us, especially if this is a new practice, you're left alone with just you and God. And what if that proves to be not much? What happens when you're alone with God and it doesn't feel like God's there? Or God's saying anything. And you have to stand and kind of face to face with the stark reality that you've never invested much time or effort into your relationship with God. And so this feels foreign and this feels strange and you don't even know if God's on the other side. And so you... It's like being in a really, really dark room. Like a room so dark that you're not even sure where the furniture is. Or if you've kind of had the lights turned off, turn on and then turned off and you haven't quite adjusted to the disorientation of the dark, kind of fumbling around the room. This is what this practice feels like. And then there's also kind of this emotional barrier that we have to get through. Because for many of us, there's a whole host of feelings that we try real hard not to feel. That anytime they come up, we just push them back down. It's like that old arcade game, a whack-a-mole. You just can't, every time they pop up, you just smack them back down. Because it's hard. And it's uncomfortable. And it's gross. But what happens over time, the longer we sit, and the longer we're still, and the longer we're silent, there is a settling of sorts. There is a quieting of sorts. And it will feel like wrestling. 
and like torture and like agony because in a way there is a dying. Oftentimes it's kind of the dying of our personality, those parts of us that we put on that we think help us navigate the world well, that help us navigate all of the issues and relationships and situations. And it's not that those things aren't helpful, but they mask some of the truer, deeper, more genuine parts of ourselves. For me, this looks like achievement and performance and success. If I can just do enough stuff, if I can just be busy enough and good enough at all of the stuff that I choose to do, it'll mask all of the other stuff and all of the insecurity and all of the fear and all of the anxiety and all of the desire for control that I carry through life. But when I have to stop, and I have to be still, and I just have to look at it all, Ugh, it's awful. And you want to give up and you want to go away and you say that's a practice for somebody else. But what will happen is if you sit there in it, with it, and wrestle it long enough, you'll begin to see this personality fall away and your true self emerge and that's when God begins to work. It's kind of like this illustration here. For a lot of us, our life looks like this jar of sand and water. Constant agitation, constant busyness, constant hurry, constant distraction and disruption. And then we look and we're like, I don't, prayer's not working for me. This isn't very clear. I can't see. I don't have any guidance. I don't have any answers. Where is God in this? This doesn't make sense. You try to look through it and you can't see anything. Because all the stuff emotionally, psychologically, spiritually, relationally is just being constantly agitated. Constantly agitated. But guess what happens if I keep you here long enough? Maybe past when the start of some of these playoff games happen. <laughs> Eventually, all of the sediment that's loose and floating around, all of the little parts of our relationships and personality and spirituality and all of that stuff begins to settle and it starts to look a whole lot clearer. It's not perfect. You wouldn't want to drive down the street with this, but it's way clearer than that. And suddenly there's a part of your, yourself and your life and your relationship with God that becomes easier to discern and easier to gain a perspective over because you've allowed all of the sediment, all the little parts to begin to settle. I think, I think for some of us, we hope for an empty jar or a jar just of water. And when that doesn't come, we think it's because we've done something wrong. And really, it's just we haven't wrestled long enough. We haven't stuck with it long enough for time to have the natural gravitational effect of settling all of this stuff that gets in the way down to the bottom so that our lives begin to look clearer and easier to navigate. And this is what happens to Jacob. So he wrestles with this man till daybreak. And then when the man saw that he could not overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Another translation says he kind of pulls Jacob's hip out of socket. 
And then the man said, this mysterious man says, let me go, for it's daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And I think this is the other part of sitting in stillness and silence and solitude is we have to be committed to wrestling and hanging in there, unwilling to let go until there starts to be an effect in our lives where we begin to have a greater sense of who God is and of who we are and of who God is calling us to be. Because this is the blessing that Jacob desires is a life well lived, life living into the example and into the direction that God has for Jacob. The story goes on. The man asks him, he says, what is your name? And Jacob answers and he says, Jacob. And then the man says, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have persevered with God and with humans and have endured. This is the effect of being committed to wrestling. As you gain a greater sense of your true identity, clarity around who God is actually calling you to be in your life. You are no longer Jacob. No, you're Israel. Because you've been willing to wrestle. You've stuck in there. And you have persevered. And you have come out the other side of the process. Most of us don't enter into this process willingly. Oftentimes it happens, like I've said before, initiated by some loss in our life. Death, grief, agony, pain, heartbreak, broken dreams, whatever sort. That's the entry point into this process. But the choice before us is whether or not we stay and we wrestle and we give there enough time for our identity to emerge. This is what Father Richard Rohr says. He says, change is adding something new. Transformation is letting something old fall away. For lots of us, we have these difficult moments in life and we try to course correct and pivot or run away from it as fast as we can. But if you'll sit in it, and you'll wrestle with God in it, something old's going to fall away. And something new is going to emerge. And what emerges is clarity around your purpose, around who God is calling you to be. You take on a new identity and a new name. And it's not as clean and as simple as, you know, the purpose-driven life and you find your one unique purpose in the world and you move towards that. Most likely, for most of you, it will just look like clarity around how you can better love God and better love other people. But a life committed to that is a life well-lived. It is a life rich in meaning and significance and purpose far beyond any of the trappings of success or fame or popularity or wealth or whatever you desire. Jacob responds, 
And he says, please tell me your name. And the man says, why do you want to know my name? And then in that moment, he blesses Jacob. And so Jacob called the place of the wrestling Peniel, saying, it's because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. Another translation says, I saw God face to face, and I lived to tell about it. And it's from that place that Jacob's story continues. It says, the sun rose above him as he left, and he was limping because of his hip. And that's the other part of the story that you need to know. You won't leave the wrestling match the same. You'll have clarity over your identity, over who God is calling you to be and what a life well lived looks like. But you're going to be dragging a leg. There's a limp that comes with that. There is a loss, there is a woundedness, there is a suffering that you have to endure. And your life will forever be marked by the wrestling match. But not in an ugly, disfigured sort of way. But in a beautiful way. In a way of kind of this wounded healer who lives to tell about their story of wrestling with God face to face. And what it did to them. And how it changed their life and reoriented the trajectory of how they directed their energies and their values and their priorities. It will cost you something to follow Jesus. It will cost you something to wrestle with God. But we all know of somebody who has been wounded in this way. Who has wrestled with God. And their life is far more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. Whether it was a mother of yours, a grandmother, someone that you grew up with in church, some mentor or father figure type, somebody who their life was marked by this beautiful overflowing of love and richness and goodness. Their life had depth and meaning and substance, not because of what they accomplished in their life, but because of who they became throughout their life. The inner transformation, the inner journey that they went on and came out of the other side and lived to tell about it. And so friends, if this is your first time with us, or you've been here every time, this is the journey that we're all on. This is the opportunity that we have to wrestle with God and to come out the other side different but far closer to who God created us to be and I don't want you to miss it I don't want to miss it this is something that I struggle with too it is hard to prioritize and protect and to make the time to re-engage in the wrestling match but if we get anything right friends if we can get this right this is not pastoral hyperbole it'll change everything because it'll change us. Let me pray that this would be so. Heavenly God, we come before you this morning. Probably a little hesitant. A little unwilling to engage in this way with you. 
uh, this wrestling process is not direct and it is not linear. And success does not look like the way the rest of the world looks. So God, as we come before you, help us to trust you, to trust what is on the other side of this, to trust that you are calling us into a deeper and richer and fuller life marked by inner transformation. God, help us to persevere, to wrestle with you, and allow you to change us. God, we love you, and we are so grateful that you love us. We pray this in your name. Amen.